I made a point of commenting on every single person's submission every single week. So I commented on, you know, something like five or 6,000 submissions over the course of 10 months. This is Heart of the Story, and I'm Nadine Kenny Johnstone. I'm a writer and a writing coach who helps women develop and publish their memoirs and essays. But most importantly, I'm a human who's always trying to figure out what my soul is saying. Each week, I'll share stories and tips of healing, hope, and following my heart so that you'll feel inspired to follow yours. Oh my goodness. You all are the best. Thank you for your resounding support of my new book, Come Home to Your Heart. I have been inundated in the best way possible with your notes and messages and your pictures of you and the book. And you've been telling me all the ways that the book is helping you understand how journaling can really help you tap into your innate wisdom and fall back in love with yourself. I am just overcome with gratitude for you. And if you're new here and you're going, what the heck is she talking about? (laughs) Never fear. I have an essay collection and guided journal out in the world called Come Home to Your Heart. And it really is my way of sharing all of my favorite journaling prompts and practices that help you tune in to your deep inner wisdom. If you want a sneak peek of this to test it out before going full steam ahead through the whole book, you can get a download of the number one journal prompt that I teach at all my retreats. That is the most effective thing that I do every single morning that takes less than 10 minutes, but really gets at the core of your deep wisdom. And that's at my website, nadinekennyjohnstone.com forward slash community. And you'll get a download of that. I'll put the link in the show notes. So without further ado, let's dive into the reason you are here, which is my chat with the incredible writer, editor, retreat host, Allison K. Williams. She is a master of many trades. She is a writer. She is an editor. She's the author of Seven Drafts. She is the social media editor for Brevity. And she is really, really sharp when it comes to editing. She's also a coach. She leads retreats. There's just about nothing she doesn't do for the writing biz. And I can't wait for you to hear personally from her. So welcome to the show. Allison. Thank you, Nadine. It is so absolutely awesome to be here. And for everyone who's listening, one of the things that's really neat about writing is how much of a community and how much of a network it is. And I know Nadine because more than 10 years ago, because I was not married to the man I'm married to now, um, (laughs) more than 10 years ago, you and I were together in a memoir class led by Grace Talusan, who's a wonderful teacher at Grub Street in Boston. And I had actually deliberately stayed in Boston three weeks past the end of a job that I was doing in Boston because I wanted specifically to take this class. And uh, I'm actually still in touch with you. I'm still in touch with our wonderful friend, Debbie Bleacher, who was also in the class. And I love how as writers, we have that kind of 
old high school friend feeling where you were so intimate in class together and talked about so many wide ranging things, all the guards down that even though we haven't seen each other in many years, we can just kind of pick up where we left off. And I love that feeling. That is such a good point. I have wondered over the years why the people in writing workshops become so close and stay often lifelong friends or pick up right where they left off. And it is true, especially when you're writing memoir and essay, that you have to let your guard down. People know very intimate details about you, and you have to be a very open receptor of feedback, a very gracious giver of feedback. And so it really creates a supportive, conducive environment for people to unite. And I'm I'm so glad that when I've been seeing your name in so many different writing circles that when I reached out, it was like, instant, you know, just back to being able to chat like we were in class. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And, yeah. and you are in so many different writing circles with all the work you do. So I want to take listeners back to how did you get on to this path of writing? Um, because you've also done things like circus performance. And you have the most interesting, fun, adventurous past. And I saw you perform doing your aerial acrobatics. And I just think that people are always like, wait, what? <laughs> so how did you get into writing and editing? I have been a writer since I was old enough to dictate stories to my mother and have her write them down before I could write. I have always been a writer. And I did not make my living as a writer for quite some time because when I got out of high school, I decided I really wanted to focus on theater. And I spent a year on the road with the Renaissance Festival where I picked up a lot of uh, improv stuff, picked up fire eating. And when I had graduated from high school, my English teacher said, oh, you're wasting yourself by going into theater. And uh, my theater teacher had said, oh, if you go into English, you'll be wasting yourself, you know, <laughs> so it was kind of like a, a war of art there. But I was performing as a circus performer because I, I was trained as a classical actor and I love classical stage acting. It does not pay particularly well. And so I got into mask and movement theater and I taught stage combat and I taught mask and I taught Commedia dell'arte all of which at the time I taught them were fairly rare skills to teach. So it was pretty easy to get brought into colleges as a guest artist. And I got brought on to a number of productions as both an actor and someone on the directing staff as well, which I really loved and enjoyed. And then I was teaching in Michigan at Western Michigan University in the theater department and loving it and enjoying it. And yet I still wanted to be performing more. And a couple of my students had aerial equipment and had had like rudimentary lessons because now every yoga studio in town has an aerial class, but back then nobody did aerial. It was just not a thing that you could do outside the circus, you know, and it was at that time too, when the circus was also starting to be young people with no previous family connection to circus going to circus school and making things like Cirque du Soleil. 
who I first saw perform in the park in Ottawa for free. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I still remember it. I must have been five or six. And my students had equipment and desire, and I had keys to the rehearsal space. Mm -hmm. So we started practicing aerial stuff and we thought, oh, this is really fun. We should make a show out of it. And I started touring the Renaissance Festival circuit, which I was already familiar with. And I started street performing in Canada and in Europe, and I started doing corporate work. And so for about 15 years, I had this fairly busy life as a full-time circus performer. And for anyone who aspires to circus performance or aerial performance, I want to tell you, I have never done a split in my entire life. When I started training to do aerial, I could not do a push-up. I had some yoga classes, but I had never taken gymnastics. I had never taken figure skating. I had not been a particularly good dancer in my school recitals. You know, I really did start from nothing. And some of it's the time at which I started. There was less competition. And some of it is when I made a company, I made a point of hiring people who were all far more physically skilled than I was. And I was the ringmaster and I got up and did a little bit, you know, but I always kept writing through the whole thing. And I, and I loved writing. And in 2012, an old high school friend of mine put on a writing contest where every week there was a prompt and everybody had to write something for the prompt. And it could be anything you wanted, fiction, nonfiction, song, lyrics, poetry, essays, whatever. And every week there was a vote and whoever were like the least vote getters, you know, quote unquote, went home and 368 people started playing this game. And I started playing this game and I thought, boy, this would be really nice to win. And I did not realize when I started that it was going to last 10 months and that by the end of 10 months, I was writing eight pieces in two weeks because the goal was to just make it harder and harder and harder on the participants as it went. And I realized really early on that if I'm going to win, everybody here has to like me enough to want to vote for me. And I'm going to have to bring in outside readers. And so I spent 10 months carefully cultivating a group of outside friends who would read my pieces and vote for me and who I could rotate through that list of friends so that I wasn't burdening everybody every single week. And all of a sudden I built a group of readers who wanted to read what I had to say. And I mean, these were all short pieces, but I had readers. And also I made a point of commenting on every single person's submission every single week. So I commented on, you know, something like five or 6,000 submissions over the course of 10 months, every single one of them, every single week. And that's when I became an editor because I had always kind of casually given feedback to friends and writing classes and stuff. And then I realized, oh, if I want them to like me, and it it really was like that crass a desire. If I want them to like me, I'm going to need to tell them something that is genuinely, truthfully good about their work, that they can feel it in their heart, that I have recognized something that they have done well. And I'm going to give them one supportive, kind comment that is specific enough that they can use it to get better and they will feel it in their heart. Oh yeah. If I fix that, it will be better. And doing that for so long, I came out of that contest with readers. I came out with editing skill because I was reading a whole bunch of work from emerging writers, early career writers. And we all tend to have the same problems at the same stage of our writing development 
And I came out with uh, 65 short pieces that were ready to be polished and sent out to literary magazines. Because when creativity has a deadline, it's a lot easier to be creative. <laughs> yes, Jane Friedman, who was recently on the show, said you have to train your muse. <laughs> so many things that you just talked about are so true to everything that you've done in my mind in that whether it's circus performing and starting that company or editing you find the opportunity in the thing you find your niche what makes you different what you're good at and you have a wonderful way of figuring out how to grow and gain true community and Thank that's you. really interesting that that happens no matter what you do. What helps me the most is about halfway through my circus career and circus people and street people still are to some extent, but used to be incredibly cagey about where I'm working, who books that, how much money are they paying? And then I wrote a really big editorial for a circus magazine that a lot of the community read that was, you can either whine and complain that new people in the business are undercutting the professionals, or you can tell them how much you're making and teach them to ask for the right price. You can't complain and not tell them what how much money they need to ask for. And when I wrote that editorial, I also realized, oh my goodness, it was like a bolt of lightning. There is enough. There's enough audience, there's yeah. enough money, there's enough gigs, there's enough readers, there's enough love. There is enough. And when I switched my business focus, and this has stayed with me through being a professional editor, it came over from being a professional performer. When I changed my focus from got to get the gig, got to protect the gig like a secret, got to protect all of the how to do business like a secret, can't tell anybody anything. It's all got to be mine, 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 me, me, me. And it was a very jealous and tense and worried and angry place to be. And when I opened up, when I said, yeah, I'm going to take on interns and I'm going to teach them how to write a script and how to do a show. And now there's a whole bunch of people who have their own shows because they started with me and they wouldn't have made it in if they'd had to, you know, show up at Covent Garden in London and get yelled at by audience members until they got tough enough. Most of them wouldn't have bothered. You know, they're not, they're not untalented people. They had other options, you know, yeah. and when I started being like, oh yeah, hey, you're doing this corporate gig. You should ask for this much money. I mean, even to the point where I got a call from somebody who was like, oh yeah, we're booking Sarah Michelle Geller's birthday party. And I wasn't sure if it was a scam or just like a weird kind of snaky person, but I called every other aerialist within a hundred mile radius. And I was like, hey, just so you know, I got a call from these people. This is how much I quoted. This is the runaround they gave me. And I just want you to know in case they call you too. Wow. And suddenly we all felt like a community that was there to help each other. That was there to say, oh, I'm already booked on Tuesday. Let me pass you to my friend. She will also do a great job. And I try to do this with writing as well. Because it is so easy to look at somebody's push cart prize or fellowship or residency or contract for their book and go, ooh, that should have been mine. How come that's not me? 
But instead, I have to actively recognize, okay, yeah, I'm feeling a little jealous. Why did they get it? Because they worked really hard for it. And I'm working really hard too. And jealousy is actually a good sign because we don't get jealous of stuff we'll never have. I'm not jealous of Bob Dylan because he won the the Nobel Prize. I am never going to be in the running for that. You know, but I sure am jealous of my friends who get really nice publication deals because those are just a little bit outside my grasp. And by recognizing, oh, yeah, I'm feeling mildly, mildly envious of my friend here. It's because, oh, I need to model my behavior on what they did or I need to do my own version of it so that I can get to that next step that they got to because they didn't get there by winning the lottery. They got there by work. Mm, it's so true. There's a wonderful author named Shauna Nequist, and she wrote a whole essay about this where she has this phrase that we've all used, must be nice, that she used to use in a very envious way of, oh, look at her. She looks very restful. Must be nice to have that kind of time. Oh, look at her. She got this deal or, or was on that stage. Must be nice. And suddenly it became a clue to her, not of the jealousy, but of something she innately desired. It was a clue about inner deep desire that if we're willing to look at and go, oh, I actually want that too. It becomes, yes, a little scary, but exciting. And we start to go, well, what can I do to get there? And I think this also works as we write the end of our memoirs. Because mm. one of the things that I think we forget, even when we're we're writing and we're technically in control of what's on the page, we forget that we do have some control over the ending of our own story. And I often tell people, if you're not sure where the end of your memoir is, you may not have lived it yet. So write an imaginary final chapter in which narrator you gets what you think you want, gets the resolution you need, gets to the location you need to be, gets to the relationship you need to have. And then make a list of the steps that imaginary you would have taken to get there. Then take those steps. Mm. Therapy may be involved, you know, <laughs> but I really do believe we get to write the end of our own story and we don't give ourselves that power in life quite enough. You know, we think, oh, this happened to me, that happened to me. And there's, there's, you know, there's a certain amount of calmness that I may be lacking in my life because I really am a bit of a terrier about, I want this thing. I'm going to go get this thing. I'm going to do everything I can. And, oh, these other people would like this thing. Can I bring them with me? And we'll all get the thing, yeah. you know, but people really, I think, underestimate the amount of control they have over their own life, their own writing, their own career, their own desires. Hmm. It's so true. Glennon Doyle has this wonderful quote of what's the truest, most beautiful version of your life that you can imagine, or what's the truest, most beautiful story of your life that you can imagine. And sometimes at my retreats, I do a meditation around that so that women can visualize that. But I love this extra step. Now, what are the steps you would imaginary you would take to go get it? Because there's your plan. Here's yep, your blueprint. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, the difference between a dream and a goal is that a goal has plans and steps and things you can tick off on a list. Mm. And sometimes those things can even be 
the things that we think are too nebulous to tick off on a list. I mean, I'm in a very, um, you know, knock wood and all that very happy marriage right now. And I sought him out with really specific criteria in mind. I want a man who ticks these three boxes, smart, funny, financially secure. Anybody who meets those three basic qualities gets at least two dates to see if they'll, <laughs> they'll work out or not. Anybody who does not meet any of these qualities, no, thank you. Goodbye. I'm not going to take a chance because these are the three things that are the deal breaker things. And I ended up in a really lovely relationship with a guy I adore who has supported my writing career immensely. I mean, which is a huge level of privilege that not everybody gets. And I, I did it by being very shark-like and cold-hearted about how I was looking and who I was looking for. How did you meet him? I don't even know this story. Online. I met him online. Um, so I went on OkCupid. And as my as my friend Joshua said, uh, because he went on, I was sitting with Joshua and talking about like what dating's like online as a woman, as opposed to as a man. Uh -huh. And I said, here, log in as me for a second. I have my chat turned off, but I'll turn on the chat so you can see what it's like. And <gasps> after 15 minutes, he was like, oh my goodness, it's like being in a souk, except everybody is waving their penis instead of saffron at you. <laughs> and, you know, because I always just kept the chat turned off. And so I was just really specific. And the man who is now my husband was the only person I messaged first because women don't need to message people first on dating apps. We get the messages and then adjudicate who we would like to talk to. He didn't even have a real picture on his profile. He had a cartoon, but I thought his voice was so funny and clever and interesting that I really wanted to meet him. And uh, I had already decided I knew I was going to Dubai to perform at that point. And so I said, okay, I'm going to set my dating location to Dubai. And about a month and a half before I went, I started pre-screening dates so that I could see who I wanted to meet when I got there. And uh, one of them was uh, the guy who's my guy. Oh, my goodness. And now you live in Dubai. I do. I do. And, and that's also kind of part of how I became a writer. These stories are all sort of woven together because... I knew that I was nearing circus retirement. I was at an age where it was like, oh, I am standing between two 25-year-olds and we are all wearing the identical spandex outfit. And this no longer feels as happy as it used to feel. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, the, the bruises start to take a little longer to heal. I got tired of that feeling of, uh, you know, I wake up in the night and I don't know where the bathroom is. And so I was already kind of getting ready to retire from circus and I was performing in Dubai and my boss for that gig said, oh, hey, I know you're also a good event manager. Do you want to come back in about six months? And I've got a six month contract for you at this mall. You've just got to supervise. You set up in the morning and then you sit in a coffee shop next to the stage. You write all day and you just solve an emergency if it happens. So you'll have a job, you'll have a visa, you'll have an apartment. It'll be great. I'm like, fabulous. That'll be fantastic. And I didn't get a contract, which is not unusual in the Middle East, you know, so it's not a it's not a warning flag. A lot of deals in the Middle East are handshake deals. And I, you know, I'd worked with this guy many times before and I've worked with him many times since. And seven days before I was supposed to go to Dubai, my boss called and he said, sorry, but the gig fell through. You don't have a job. You don't have a visa. You don't have a place to live. And at this point, I had gone back to Dubai twice to see Alf and, and you know, get to know him better. And we were falling in love and we knew we wanted to be together. And I called him up and I said, well, I already have a one-way ticket, so I'm at least going to come visit and then I'll figure out what I'm going to do. And he said, well, 
you've been putting out to the universe for quite some time that you wanted more time to write. And the universe has just handed it to you. So you'd better move in here. And all you have to do is write. I'll, I'll support you. You just write. And Ooh. so I, again, it's a huge level of privilege. I had the privilege to develop my editing business without having to pay my rent with it for the first, you know, six, eight months and uh, was able to spend that time focusing on writing, focusing on editing and getting better at marketing what it was I wanted to do. Wow. Wow. I love how you use the time though. You didn't waste it away. You knew that this was a key opportunity and you not only wrote, but you developed your business. And many of the women who listen, they're writers, but also many want to make writing their full-time thing. How do I make this into some kind of sustainable living? Whether I teach, whether I edit, whether I coach, what have you. So how did you do that? What steps did you take? Well, I think it really helps to decide who you are that nobody else is. Mm -hmm. And I call myself the unkind editor. <laughs> and I chose that because when I first sat down in an apartment all by myself in Dubai, while my, you know, my then fiance was off at work doing his exciting, you know, job that I really did not understand at that point. All I really knew was, oh yeah, he wears a tie. It, it must <laughs> be important, you know? And um, I was leafing through the back pages of uh, Poets and Writers and Writers Digest and looking at the classified ads because I was thinking, oh, I should put a classified ad in. Maybe that's how I'll get some clients. And they all said things like kind editor, loving editor, nurturing editor. And I thought to myself, every writer I know is like, just tell me what's wrong so I can fix it. And so I called myself the unkind editor and I'm not mean to people, but it's like, if you have a running coach, their job is not to say, oh, honey, you ran real fast that time. Their job is to make you run faster. Mm -hmm. And as an editor, it's, you know, praise is nice, but insightful and specific criticism from a trusted source is what makes your work better. And mm -hmm. so I did put a Google ad in, I did put a classified ad in a writing magazine and I got a couple of random strangers. And then I also started to get the word out among my friends who were writers. And as I went to writing workshops for my own writing over the next couple of years, people would listen to me, give feedback in class and go, Ooh, I would like to pay you for more feedback. And really kind of got a sense of how I wanted to deliver feedback. And I originally started as a playwright. So I got an MFA in Among All That Circus and my MFA is in playwriting and my background is as an actor. And so I'm really used to looking and going, well, why is this character in this scene? Well, what does this person want in this scene and how are they going about getting it? Because when you are writing a play, you will have an actor who stops in the middle of a scene in the middle of rehearsal and goes, um, excuse me, I don't know why I'm here. What does my character want in this scene? And you've got 24 hours to write new pages and fix it. Or the same actor will stop at the same place tomorrow night. Mm -hmm. And most of us, I think, as memoirists, as novelists, we don't really get taught this idea of there's an objective, there are steps along the way to that objective, 
And there are tactics that you try to get through each step to get to the objective. And it sounds very simple, but when you apply it to a scene, all of a sudden, these two people talking at a table become tense and interesting and passionate because they want something and they're trying to get something. Mm -hmm. And realizing that, oh, hey, that's who I am as an editor. I'm the editor with the playwriting background. I'm the editor who will give it to you straight. That's how I ended up making that business. And I invested a lot of time for free as well, because in one of the writing workshops that I went to for my own work, I met Dinty W. Moore, who's the editor-in-chief of Brevity, which is a flash nonfiction magazine. And I would say probably the, the biggest deal of the flash nonfiction magazines out there and one of the biggest deal literary magazines out there, which is kind of cool how we've grown. And I took Dinty's class and he liked what I had to say and liked my writing. And he invited me to come back the next year as his teaching fellow, which was great because I could not have afforded to go to the workshop twice. Mm -hmm. And then when I taught like a little seminar in that class about being on social media and using it to be a better writer, he said, oh, well, why don't we create a job for you at Brevity, which is social media editor. And like most literary magazines, none of us get paid to work for Brevity. And so I started writing for the Brevity blog and twice a week for 10 years, I put out stuff about how to be a better writer and people got to know me through that too. I think a lot of it is really how much can you afford to give away for free in a structured and focused manner that puts you into contact with the people who would like to pay you for additional stuff because they really liked what they got for free. It's so true. So, so many things you said I want to touch on. First of all, with the unkind editor, we have to be unkind editors to ourselves with our own Absolutely. writing. This is the area where I find that so many writers feel completely inept. They feel uh, uncertain. They don't know what to do. And many of the questions you talked about from a playwright's perspective, we have to figure out how does this propel the plot? How does this develop your characters? It's especially hard, I find, with memoirists because they're like, well, this is my life. This is what happened. But the goal is you have to take that and then craft it into an engaging narrative for a reader. And that is where sometimes the disconnect happens. So so many writers they write and they write and they write but then when it comes to revision and editing they feel completely stuck and you wrote a whole book about this you wrote seven drafts so tell us what tips and tools do you have for people when it comes time to edit their own work well don't edit before you've written it because it mm. is so much easier to fix average to poor writing than it is to fix a blank page. <laughs> so start by getting down as much of the book as you possibly can, and then look at the big picture. Does the story work? Does it make sense? Does it all hang together? Does it pay off in a satisfying way? Then look at the individual characters. Are people's goals and drives and needs clear? Do they take steps to reach those goals and drives and needs? You know, then you get down to the stage of, let me fix the sentences. Let me polish the grammar. Let me make sure that for every grammar rule I'm breaking, I'm doing it on purpose because I like how it sounds and not out of ignorance. I think that 
one of the biggest challenges with memoir in particular is because it happened to us, it is compelling to us. And the hardest leap for the memoirist to make is to make what is compelling to them compelling to other people as well. And I like to think of this as expansion, this idea that, okay, so I was in an abusive relationship, but the story that I really need to tell is here's how you get out when it looks like the night is pitch black and there's no one to help you. And here are some things you might try by watching my story, not just this bad thing happened, this bad thing happened, then a good thing happened, then a bad thing happened, then a good thing happened. I think there's a really great example of this actually in a, a book that that I worked on by Karen Fine, who is a doctor of veterinary medicine. And Karen wrote a book called The Other Family Doctor, a veterinarian's view on love, loss, mindfulness, and mortality. Mm. And when Karen and I worked together, the book had been rejected because nobody wanted a book about a dead dog. You know, that there, I mean, there's a website about it. Tell me if the dog dies so that people know whether to read a book because they don't want to read about a dead dog. And I said, well, here's the thing, you know, this is the dead dog book. You got to put the dead dog right up front. You know, that is not, that is not a fault. That is a feature. And so the book went from my dog died and it sucked and I had breast cancer and that sucked too. And here's some cute veterinarian stories, you know, and, and it was charming, but it was not a book that illuminated the life of the reader. And what the book became, what Karen mutated this book into was here is how to deal with the loss of a pet. Here is how dealing with the loss of a pet helps you accept other losses. Here is how to be in a world when people look at you and say things like, oh, come on, it was only a dog, you know, and it became this beautiful book that still contains, I lost my dog and it sucked and I had breast cancer and it sucked, but it also speaks to the reader's needs. It focuses on what the reader needs to move through their grief and loss and relate to their own pets. One of the beta readers said an amazing thing. You know, she said, uh, I feel like I no longer have to agonize about whether I made the right choice, what to spend on end of life care for my dog and what not to spend on end of life care for my dog. Mm. And that's the biggest thing with memoir. We've got to step across that bridge and make our work relevant to the reader. Yes, yes, yes. I talk about it as human truth and how to, meaning that every memoir should get at these core truths that some reader should be able to connect with and have this how-to moment of, oh, now I know how to do X, Y, Z. I know how to get through X, Y, Z. And one of the biggest questions that help with that at the end of every chapter, at the end of the entire book is, I always say to writers, what do you want your reader to think, feel, know, or connect with? If you can answer those questions, then it goes from being just this thing that happened to you and something that is engaging and useful to your reader. Mm -hmm. And that's really key. And some of the world's greatest memoirs don't do that per se, but most of us don't write like Joan Didion. Mm -hmm. Most of us don't write like Jeanette Walls. And we really, as memoirists, and this is the hard, cold, unkind editor talking, you can either spend your time learning to write 
national book award level prose, which means getting an MFA, which means studying and refining your craft, which means having teachers who mentor you, which means going to fellowships and residencies, which means possibly taking a low level teaching job yourself so that you have more time to focus on becoming the best possible writer you can. It means steeping yourself in the literary community. It also requires privilege. It requires a certain amount of youth. It requires a certain amount of connection and it requires some seed money to get started. And there are books that sell just because the writing is beautiful and amazing and fantastic. Most of us aren't that good, but most of us don't have to be that good because we can take our own voice, our own passion and write as well as we can. And if our story speaks to the reader, that leaps over that extra bit of, okay, maybe this is not Nobel Prize worthy prose, but the story has connected and the prose serves the story. Mm -hmm. That's so true. I love that. And it feels like a relief when you say that, that we don't all have to take that path or be that good. Because at the end of the day, a good story shows going to and going through, meaning it shows the physical, what's happening externally. Where are these characters going? What journey are they going on? But it also shows what they're going through emotionally. And when a reader reads it, they somehow take that information, even if you haven't overtly made it a how-to, and they go, oh, now I know how to go to this thing, go to the Appalachian Trail and do a hike, or go through the grief of losing a mother. And I love that editor's perspective on this, of really helping people go from the thing that is their life story to the reader engagement narrative that will be really fulfilling for a reader to have. When you wrote Seven Drafts, tell us a little bit about where the idea came from and why you know that readers needed that book. The idea came because I was speaking to a women writers group in Bombay, India, who I had gone to speak with a couple of times. I first got to India as a performer and uh, went back a few times as a writer. And I also did some work for an NGO in there somewhere. And I was doing a live stream talking to writers in the room and also talking to writers on Periscope, which used to be a thing that live streamed. Mm -hmm. And someone said flat out, they said, so how many drafts do you need to write? Mm. And I said, okay, well, you need the vomit draft, which is just, you know, get it out, get it out, get it onto the page. You need a draft where you focus on the story and you make sure it all makes sense. You need a draft where you focus on the characters, make sure that they're all clear. Then you need a technical draft where you clean everything up and make all your sentences as good as you can. Then you want to do like a personal copy edit before you send it to your beta readers or your friend readers. And then you take their feedback and do another draft. And then you do a professional level read, whether that is just another writer who you know to be much better than you or your agent or a hired professional editor, but you know, a professional level read. And I said, oh, that makes seven, seven. You need to do seven drafts. <laughs> and I wrote it up as a blog for brevity and he expanded on it a little bit more. And I thought, okay, yeah, yeah, this, this really is kind of what I believe. And 
then I started thinking, well, I should write a book. I should write a book about editing. And I had already shopped a young adult novel that had not gotten picked up by agents. I shopped it twice. And now I'm about to send it to my current agent because I think I finally fixed what's wrong with it. I had shopped a memoir that had been agented, but had not sold. People either loved the voice and hated the story or loved the story and hated the voice. And I picked it up about a year after it didn't sell. And I'm like, oh, it's bad. That's why it didn't sell. <laughs> you know, I wrote it while I was in unmedicated depression and it reads like it was written by someone in unmedicated depression. And once I got on medication, I'm like, oh no, this is a very sad little depressing book. I don't want to publish this. I'm so glad it didn't sell. And I thought I'd like to sell a book. And I first wrote, get published in literary magazines. It does what it says on the tin. And I wrote that because I needed something to sell at conferences. Because when you go to writing conferences as a speaker, you're very rarely paid unless you're the keynote speaker. And so I was buying my own plane tickets to go speak at writing conferences. And when you're flying from Dubai, it's a little expensive. So I needed something that I could sell for $10 that people would buy and that people would help fund me getting to these conferences. And I started to break even with that. And then as I started teaching how to edit and looking more into this whole seven drafts concept, I thought, huh, well, I should write that up as a book. And I went to AWP one year, which is a big convention of writers. It's very university driven. It's very literary magazine driven. It's not particularly commercial. There were about 750 booths in the vendor fair that year that were, you know, presses and literary magazines. And I basically made my way through that book fair over the course of three days and spoke to someone at every single publishing booth. Are you the kind of press that publishes stuff that would publish me? Yes, no. Okay, great. I'd love to have your card. I'll be in touch later. And it then took me for some unrelated reasons, it took me more than six months to actually write up the proposal for the book, because sometimes when you write nonfiction, that is what we call prescriptive nonfiction, it's a how-to, and in this case, a writing craft book, you get to sell it on proposal. You don't have to write the whole book. And I had also at that point spent 10 years writing for the Brevity blog, and I had spent a little bit longer than that, making a social media presence that focused on writing. I mean, I was not a huge social media person, but I had quite a few followers and I was lucky enough to have a tweet that went very viral and got me a whole bunch more followers. Um, if you've ever seen my Twitter, it's the one about, uh, it lists a bunch of writers over 50 who published their debut book over 50. And at the end it says, no, you're not too old to publish your first book. Mm. And that was very popular. People liked it. Neil Gaiman retweeted it, which was kind of awesome. Oh. And so... I sold the book on proposal and made a deal with a publisher and also got my agent through that as well. And the agent was someone who I had met her at previous writing conferences and been really impressed with how she dealt with authors in person. And then I had to actually write the book. But it really helped that I had been talking to so many authors for so many years through the blog, through social media, at writing conferences. And if you listen, people tell you what they need. And so I would say if you're listening and what you really want to do is make a writing-driven living that involves selling books, that involves possibly coaching of some kind or editing of some kind or teaching of some kind, because let's get real, most of us do not make big bank from our actual book. Really just listen to what people have to tell you because they will tell you what their problem is. And if you can figure out how to solve that problem, then you've already gotten halfway to their wallet because you can provide them a solution that helps them move forward. 
Everybody needs somebody who says, aha, I hear you. I understand that problem. And here is a step you can take towards fixing it. Mm. It's so helpful to hear your whole story because I think that people see a published book, they see someone as an editor, writing coach, they see someone who is the social media editor for Brevity, and they just often think that people just land in those spots. They don't hear about the book that got an agent but never went to print. They don't hear about all the hard work, strategic hard work that went in along the way. I also think it's helpful for those who are listening that are doing those steps and there is no clear end vision, but they know, okay, well, I'm going to the conferences, I'm talking to these people, and oftentimes they just kind of want to give up. They're like, this is a lot of work. (laughs) It's helpful to know that all those things karmically kind of pay off, that nothing is wasted, that the conference, that the connection, talking to so-and-so, building that community, supporting somebody else, none of it is lost. We never know how one connection will lead to the next. Like for example, when sitting down and taking Dinty's class, you might not have known in that moment that they would eventually make a position for you and that you and Dinty would lead retreats together, right? So you never know where something's going to go. And that's, I think, helpful and hopeful for people to hear that time spent in any kind of writing related endeavor can lead to something bigger. A few questions on this. One, people might hear everything you do and their reaction might be like mine, which is, holy crap, when do you ever sleep? How do you get the energy to do this? How do you keep going? Like this seems like energizer bunny level persistence. (laughs) Do you ever have downtime? How do you keep going? (laughs) Let's talk about that. It's important to know I have no children. I have no pets. Mm -hmm. I live more than 3000 miles away from anyone who is a blood relative Mm -hmm. and my husband cleans house. Mm-hmm. And those are things that really lighten up the amount of burden on me. I do get burned out. People who have spent a week in Portugal with me before you heard this podcast, just know that I am I am going into this with all the love in my heart, but I am exhausted. And I have one full day tomorrow and half a day the next day before I have to meet people and be on and be there for them. And... I'm a little bit worried. I'm not going to lie. I'm also teaching a class right now that will be on hiatus for the next week. It's called, I call it catch up week and everybody else gets to catch up on the stuff that they're behind on. But I have editing that needs to be done for that class. I have a couple of last minute things to nail down for the retreat. I'm like, I don't know, three years behind on my taxes at this point. Some of it is I don't get everything done. There's things that you get done in your life that I don't get done. I am at a stage in life right now where I'm making a transition into having more things that start to run themselves, classes on video that people can take, and I don't have to be present and teach it live. The retreats are starting to sell themselves a bit more. I don't have to do quite so much marketing because I've invested 10 years in building a mailing list. 
And I would say too, if you are starting out on a creative enterprise, start building your mailing list now. Even if all you're doing is putting people's emails in an Excel sheet, you're going to need them one day and you're going to be real glad you have them. But some of it too is starting to learn how to balance. So I take July off. I don't book any work during July. I take three weeks of August off. Usually I don't book anything during August. This past like two, three weeks, I have said to people, no, I'm really sorry. I can't take on your editing job because I won't be able to do a good job at it. You know, I won't be able to be a hundred percent present for it. And about two months ago, I cleared out most of my office hours for the year because I'm really focusing more on group classes. So a lot of it is making choices about what you want to be good at and what you want to spend time doing. My favorite poem in all the world by Kenneth Koch starts, you want a social life and friends, a passionate love life, and as well to work hard every day. Well, what is true is of these three, you may have two. Mm. And I don't have, I mean, I have friends, like I don't want to say it as I don't have friends, but I don't have a social life. I don't go out drinking. I don't go out to the movies. I don't go out to girls night. Some of it is because I live in Dubai and the joke about Dubai is you don't make friends because they're just going to leave. You know, mm -hmm. I have a really good writer friend who went on to move to Manila. I have a really good writer friend who eventually went back to Sweden. I have one more really good writer friend who has been trapped at home because her son is highly susceptible to COVID. Mm -hmm. So I don't have any local friends. I don't have anybody that I hang out with. I don't go to lunch. I don't go to coffee. And so if one of the things you value in your life is having a social circle that you get to spend time with, that's going to take up some of your work time. If one of the things you value is you have a child and you would like to be the best parent you possibly can be given the resources you have at this moment, children are incredibly time consuming. You know, I've hats off. I am far too selfish to have a child. <laughs> you know? and, and, and it's the same thing. I never have to be home to walk the dog. And so that's another 15 minutes I can spend answering email because I didn't have to go walk the dog. Mm -hmm. And so I really, I mean, I don't want to make it sound too appealing, but I live in some ways a very limited life with very limited interaction with other people. I love interacting with people as a teacher. Other than that, I am secretly an introvert and I would like to lie down on my bed with a book, please, and just leave me alone. And I love traveling, but I almost always travel alone too, partly because my husband has a corporate job and can't randomly take time off, but partly because when you travel alone, you get to see exactly what you want to see for exactly as long as you want to see it. Mm -hmm. I went to a beautiful garden in Portugal this morning and I enjoyed it for about 45 minutes. And then I sat in the garden cafe and did some financial stuff that I needed to do and answered a couple of emails and edited something that needed to go back to the author you kind of got to decide what kind of life do you want to live? Some people would say my life is very narrow because I don't have much of a social life. I don't have much family around me. For me, it's the perfect life because I get to be selfish. I get to focus on the writers who I'm working with. I get to focus on the next class I'm creating. And in my case, I've been lucky enough to be able to make that as an active choice. Mm. It's so true, so honest, and I love what you said about for me. We each have to decide for ourselves what is sustainable, what ideal life looks like, and again, knowing that we 
might only get two out of the three. Um, we have to decide what pace, what commitments feels true and good and right to us. And I think the most important thing is that it can and will change over time. So for example, when I first started this podcast, it's two and a half years old now, I was determined that it would be weekly, at least for the first year, because I knew that if I took a break, I would take a long break, and then I might never come back. I needed to show to myself that I could do this weekly. And then after the first year, I thought, okay, I know I'm committed now. I know I'm going to keep doing this, but what is actually sustainable? And so I talked to my podcast producer and I said, okay, I can do around three months of weekly. And then I want to take a month off in between. So it's three months on one month off during the one month that is off the listeners aren't just left with nothing we can use interviews that i've done for other podcasts bring them into the feed we can replay an old favorite you know it's not dead airtime but for me i know that i needed to build in that buffer of a month to also get energized for the next season of podcasting and that's just one example but in teaching i do a similar thing where i think the university professor in me will never be let go because i, I think in semesters all all the time. And I too think of like late July, early August as like, no, that is my coveted time. I will be back and, and full of energy come Labor Day moving forward. Then around Thanksgiving, I need to take another dip until the start of the new year. And then I can go for another four months and somewhere around May, I need to chill. So that is what works for me, but everybody needs to find their own thing. Yeah. And if you make it as an active choice, you don't have to feel like something's been taken from you because it's different for me to say, you know, oh man, I wish I could have a cat, but I travel too much versus, yep, I'm not a cat person anymore. Now I love watching the birds from the hotel balcony. Mm -hmm. And it feels different when you've chosen it. Mm, that's huge. Also knowing that nobody is going to delegate the downtime for you. You are going to have to factor that in yourself. No one is going to come and run up to you and tap you on the shoulder and say, you've been working really hard. You look like you've got a lot on your plate. Let me clear this calendar for you. You are always going to have to do it yourself for your own calendar. So there are a couple more things I want to ask you just because you are a fountain of knowledge. When you are working on brevity stuff and you notice the different sorts of writing that people send in for the blog in particular, which if anyone's unfamiliar, I think of it as writing about writing. So what sorts of things tend to be reader favorites? Like, what do you know when you see something, ah, readers are going to like that. This is perfect for brevity blog. Readers love it when it's got an immediate takeaway. Like it's nice to have your personal anecdotes. It's nice to have your beautiful writing voice, but what readers really need is, oh, wow, that gets me excited about writing today. I want to move forward with that. And so when posts come in, we get a lot of stuff about, I was rejected and I kept trying, you know, it's the hard to compete because there's been so many of them. So write something else. It's really lovely to get craft specific things like your writing will be better if you take this craft step, whether that is a step about 
using adverbs better or whether that is a step about this approach your revisions like this. We also have some really great stuff about the writing life. Suzanne Cope recently wrote one about the secret class, the idea that you schedule a regular class date for yourself as if it is an actual class and you go to a location and you work on the thing you want to get done. And she did it starting in university. She told people she had an extra class and <laughs> that way people respected her time. They didn't call her during then because she was in class mm. and we're looking for things that it's really helpful if there's an honesty in there that doesn't have to be, you know, drop your drawers and show us what you look like naked, but something that is true and honest because readers can really tell when you're speaking to them directly from your heart and from a place of honesty. We're looking for stuff that's right about 850 words, you know, anything from anything from 650 to 1000, but our sweet spot is 850 and that's usually what I cut them to. We're looking for a bio that's not five paragraphs long. I mean, really nobody's going to read the whole bio, just hit your top 3 favorite publications. And we're looking for stuff that is easy to work with. We do a pretty fast turnaround. There's myself, there's Andrea Firth, there's Heidi Crute, and there's Dinty W. Moore, and we all edit the blog. And we're looking for writers who understand it's not the end of the world. If we say, hey, we want to cut these three sentences and rearrange that one and change this word to that word, we want you to be able to go, okay, yeah, fine. It's just a blog. You know, it's going to get my name out there. It's not going to be, you know, written on my tombstone or something. So yeah. I don't know how helpful that is. <laughs> it's super helpful. Which of the things that you've written, because you've written many, many posts, what are some of the ones that seem to get the best response or have gotten the best? Um, the three that have gotten the absolute best response. Um, there was a piece called uh, Rejection is Not Feedback where I talk about how rejection is like shopping. You don't look at that sweater and go, what a horrible sweater. How dare this store ever show me that sweater? I will never look at anything from this store again. You know, nobody does that. And yet writers think, oh, that's what editors are doing to our work. Actually, mm -hmm. the editor is looking at our work and going, oh man, this is a beautiful sweater, but we already have a blue one in the spring issue. We can't put another blue sweater in there. They'll upstage each other. You know, and just remembering that that process is like shopping. I've gotten a lot of really good feedback on a piece I wrote that's about uh, what it felt like to wake up after that terrible election in 2016. And uh, it's called Chop Wood, Carry Water. And it's about how we just have to keep persisting and going on and why our art still matters, even the face of all the horror in the world. And I wrote one called Disinformation that's about how being an artist means toughing it out through an awful lot of no's before you get to yes. You know, yeah. and, and that one I say, you know, you might be blue. You might be the best blue, the blue of your mother's eyes, the cerulean blue of a beautiful Montana sky, the best blue there could ever be. They might want red. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to remember that. I love that. Yes, yes, yes. And I love the example about the sweater in the story as well, because I tell writers what helps depersonalize it a bit of like, oh my gosh, is I always say it's a numbers game. Mm -hmm. The writers who are published the most 
are rejected the most and have submitted the most. It's just part of the numbers. So <laughs> it kind of helps to get that same idea of the blue versus the red. Like we just have to move on. And where can mm -hmm. I submit to next? If there's helpful feedback, great. Incorporate it, especially if multiple people are saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. But otherwise we have to move on, submit it somewhere else. Or if they even, if the publication shows a bit of interest, send them something else right away. Like take that open door and just bust it open. Use those connections. And if there's a piece that you love that is just not getting any traction, get an outside opinion. Because mm -hmm. I have looked at so many essays and gone, oh, the problem here is that your essay starts in paragraph four, not in paragraph one. Your essay is beautiful, but it is not sellable. Mm -hmm. And it can really help to have those outside input on well, have I picked the wrong subject? Is the essay starting in the wrong place? There's an awful lot of essays that begin with several paragraphs of family history. Nobody cares. Get into the story. We don't want to look at your slideshow. Mm. Unkind editor. <laughs> <laughs> on brand, Allison. You're on brand. <laughs> I love it. So tell people what is going on with your writing that you're excited about and what's going on in terms of business or offerings that you're excited about and where can they find you? What I'm really excited about with my writing is I am about somewhere between half and a third of the way through a new young adult novel that is a modern version of Oliver Twist set in present day New York, mm -hmm. in which Oliver is a scholarship kid at a very fancy private school and the artful Dodger is a rich girl with a bling ring. And I'm mm -hmm. having a great time writing it and a great time sharing it with my writing group. And shout out to writing groups. I have to write more of the book because I'm almost at the end of the pages that they've seen, you know, so I need to write more pages before our next meeting. And that's, that's another good creativity deadline. And then what I'm excited about for business wise, I very rarely do a retreat in the United States and I've got a retreat in Wisconsin of all places on Madeline Island. And it's a second draft retreat where we're going to focus on revision, making our work better, getting to the end of the book, getting it to a publishable place. That's going to be the first week of August. And then for all of you editors and coaches out there, I will be teaching a three webinar series through Jane Friedman that is all about building your developmental editing business. And we're going to cover the nuts and bolts of what the heck is developmental editing and how do you make money and deal with clients while doing it. Wow, I love it. First of all, you sound delighted about the book you're writing, which I mean, what's the point if not to have some really good enjoyment? Uh, secondly, Wisconsin is an untapped resource because my favorite place in all the world is actually in Wisconsin. It's Door County, Wisconsin. And I lead a retreat there every summer where it's always in June. And people don't understand the beauty that's happening in the Midwest in June and July and August. I, I feel like we they hear Wisconsin, they think cheese, and they just move on. But there is so much beauty. And for it specifically to concentrate on one of the hardest parts of writing, which is the revising, I think is really, really helpful. And I understand a cheese hat is mandatory. So I have purchased <laughs> one and I will be wearing it to teach class every day. I want a picture of that. <laughs> I, I hear it. it's beautiful, though. I'm really, really excited to to go and teach there. I think it's oh. going to be a lot of fun. It's gorgeous. Well, 
Thank you. Thank you for sharing so many tips and tools with us and bringing your amazing personality to today's show. You're so welcome. And I'm so glad that we're fellow writers. Thanks for having me. Yes, I loved this talk. Allison comes with so much energy. She is just like a fire hose of knowledge and information in the best way possible. She shows up. And I hope that you got as much out of this conversation as I did and that you feel really inspired. Let us know what your favorite takeaways are from this conversation. You can tag us on Instagram. Allison is at Gorilla Memoir, and I'm at Nadine Kenny Johnstone. We want to know what your favorite tips and takeaways were. Thank you to my producer, Michelle Rado, for all of your incredible work on this show. And remember, everyone, every heart has a story, and every story has a heart. See you next week.